Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Center Court with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. I'm Jason Zone Fisher. Thank you for joining us for another episode, another week. Basketball is back. It's been a lot of fun. Ralph, how you doing there in Virginia? Have you been enjoying all the, the NBA games that are back on? Well, basketball is back, WNBA, NBA. It's been interesting to see how the NBA has adjusted to the pandemic and how they are just doing all the right things right now. There's not been... You know, like baseball cases and coming up mm-hmm. and the games being canceled. It's interesting to see the virtual fans at the games in the back and mm-hmm. the logos on the court. Sometimes you can see them as they stayed in, fade out as they right. absorb it. But uh, I'm sure they're tweaking some things. But I've been very impressed how the NBA has handled um, the games and the telecast and the, just the whole pandemic in the bubble. It's been amazing to watch. It's amazing. really incredible that they've thought of, it seems like, every single detail from game production to life in a bubble in such a short amount of time to be able to put this together. Adam Silver and the entire NBA deserves a lot of credit. Well, a lot of credit, but I'm sure they also have a staff there that's making sure it's managed and they're tweaking it every day. I mean, and I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, I mean, this can you, understand like if it's the home team playing then it's the home team logos on the court right and their advertisements home team advertisements as well so it's interesting to see that part of it how they at least adjusted to that in the game itself but i'm very impressed i said before the nba will come up with something special and they did well, you mentioned the virtual fans. Would would you be interested in being a virtual fan? Well, I'm gonna app, I, it's on the app. You get it off the app and you can see yeah. it. So you actually can watch it from the app. I so, think we got to get you like, up there on I'm that gonna, big screen. I'm going to try to figure it out. When the Houston Rockets are playing one time, I'm going to try to download and see if I can't get on there. I'd be good. That'd be a fun little Easter egg for fans watching at home. Can you spot Ralph Sampson as one yeah, of the virtual the fans cheering him on? Man, you see people like, the other night. I watched people and they saw that on the app and they waved because they were on television. Right. So. There's no TNT, so it was interesting to see. All right, for all our listeners out there, when you're watching the next Houston Rockets game on television, just keep an eye out for Ralph in the background. That's right. Well, hey, Ralph, what's new, what's good? It's one of our favorite segments, and I've got something new and pretty funny for you. Uh, You know, we had a great guest last week, Kenny Maurer, the longest tenure ref in the NBA, 33 years. Great interview. He opted not to be in the bubble. However, he's still making news because there was a recent game between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Boston Celtics. It came down to the wire. I mean, this could be a preview of the Eastern Conference Finals. And there was a controversial call, a block or a charge, which Kenny told us is the hardest call for a ref to make. It really could go either way. Well, Marcus Smart tried to draw a charge on Giannis Antetokounmpo, who had five fouls at the time. It was a close game with about two or three minutes left. Initially, they called a charge. So that would have been Boston ball and Giannis out of the game. Swings everything. Well, the refs huddled up. They reviewed it. They called it an and one. The basket counts. A foul on Marcus Smart. Giannis stays in. The Bucks win. So that night, Jalen Brown, the star shooting guard for the Boston Celtics, posted a meme, a Photoshop of two guys on a nice romantic walk, holding hands uh-huh. with the faces of Giannis onto the Kupo, the league's MVP, holding hands with our good friend, Kenny Mauer. Kenny Mauer. So he's he's still making news, even though he's not there at the bubble. Well, I'll show you how much Kenny Mauer is respected, right? As a referee, 35 yeah. years plus, you know, a lot of games. But, you know, down the stretch there, at that, a game like that, 
mm-hmm. where the fans want to see the Greek freak play against the Celtics. And, and that rivalry is now built in the bubble, right? So referees calling the play. We changed the play after we called it on the court. It changed the whole outcome of the game. And so you see the tension now getting ready to build. I mean, initially we, you know, we saw these first games in the bubble. We all thought they were like playing a video game. There was mm-hmm. no defense being played, but now you're going to have these competitors now play against each other. And the funny thing I heard the other day was, you know, they're going to the barbershop together. Right. They have opposing team, uh, a player playing right beside you getting a haircut. And now how is that going to work in that bubble? Because I'm mad at yeah. you getting into the little <laughs> argument or, or dispute on the court. And so those tensions got to build in that bubble. I know the NBA can handle it. I know they have security. I know players will respect it. But on the court, it's going to be a whole different ballgame. So uh, totally. we're to see how they play the next time. Especially as we get deeper, the playoffs begin and we get deeper Absolutely. into the playoffs. Those rivalries only heat going, up more and more. And these guys are staying in the same hotel, it's eating at the same three Absolutely. restaurants. Absolutely. So there's bound to be some interesting stories that come out of the bubble of, you know, most guys in the NBA are pretty friendly. There's a camaraderie, but there are some real rivalries. And it'd be interesting to see which guys well, actually don't I, like each I gotta, other. I got to live with you, <laughs> in a hotel with you, got to eat with you, got to get my hair cut. Uh, you know, it's going to be intense. I think you know, I'm playing for a championship as well. Um, I think, it's yeah. going, you know, it's, you know, after everybody gets used to the bubble, right? Right. Playing with no fans, you know, really there. It's going to be interesting. They will adjust. Players will adjust. Well, we have a legend on the show today, and I want to get right to this because the things that our guest has accomplished both on the basketball court and off of it. I mean, talk about a a record breaker, a record setter, a Hall of Famer. We have the legendary Nancy Lieberman joining us in just a few moments. Uh, The things that she has accomplished in her career, I mean, the youngest U.S. Olympian in basketball ever, men or women. She was a senior in high school and on the Olympic team winning a silver medal. She, uh, her prime of basketball uh, after four years at Old Dominion, where she won two national championships Absolutely. and two college players of the year, there was no WNBA. So she played on men's professional teams and excelled. And then she's inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1996. The following year is the inaugural season of the WNBA. She decides she's going to play at age 39. She's a rookie in the WNBA. She goes on the following year to be head coach and GM of a WNBA team for three seasons. She came back at age 50 to play again. Uh, The first female head coach of a men's professional league. She was an assistant with the Sacramento Kings. Uh, She just coached one of the big three teams to a championship. championship. I I could go on and on about the things that Nancy Lieberman has accomplished in her career. And we're going to get into all of that. But first, Ralph, how long have you known Nancy? Do you remember when you first met her? I've been knowing Nancy since uh, 79, 80. You know, she was that older man. I was at Virginia. And so we go way back. I watched her throw behind the back half court passes against University of Virginia female team. And so we've had that camaraderie for, for a long, long time. And then in the Hall of Fames to, you know, watching her grow over the years. Can you imagine being 19, 20 years old and then 20 years later at 39 coming back and playing in the WNBA and, and, and professional, whatever. I mean, she stayed in great shape. She's in great shape today. So mm-hmm. we'll be a great interview. You guys out there, don't stay tuned. Stay focused on this. This, this is going to be an amazing interview. It's going to be, she is someone who lives with no fear, no excuses, and she had no excuses today, even though she just had knee surgery a couple of days ago, and still she is joining us here. So without further ado, 
let's bring her on. The legendary, the one and only Nancy Lieberman. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us here on Center Court. Thank you for thinking of me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Think, we think about you every day, so it's good. Well, I think about you every day. <laughs> We've been doing this for like 35 years. I know. We've uh, we got to figure that thing out. Yeah. Just want to know, how was the knee? How was the, um, you know. If I slur, I'm on hydrocodone. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> uh, so for you, I would get out of bed. Yeah, I, today was a painful day, a hard night of sleep. You know that, the knee, and then I have a 50% tear in my Achilles. So when they oh. knocked me out, they did everything. So, but I'm good. I, this is great for me. Well, if anybody can turn over in about 48 hours, it would be you. I would expect you to be up and moving around probably by next week. Oh, thank you. Well, it's even more we're honored that you've decided to join us here today. For those listeners out there, Nancy just had her knee scoped and, and some surgery a couple of days ago. But being the superhero that you are, you don't let anything stop you or prevent you from, uh, from trucking on and, and joining us here today. Uh, how are you doing during this crazy year of 2020? You're someone who's constantly on the move, always busy, always around people. How has this quarantine experience been and dealing with the realities of of COVID-19? Well, you know, sometimes it, it takes something as horrendous as this to slow us down because we're always blowing and going and there's always something for us to do. Um, and to just be able to sit back, like I canceled 17 trips since May or March, I should say. The big three, uh, to Ice Cube's credit, you know, he canceled the season. And we'll come back in 2021. So all of a sudden, I've had enormous uh, time at home. You know, I love to cook. I'm kind of, uh, that's my, my secret uh, passion. So I cook. And TJ, my son, came home from Tel Aviv back in uh, March. So it's been really nice to have him, you know, at home for, for five months now. You never know when you're going to get those moments again uh, with your kid. I love it. He probably feels like he's in some sort of solitary confinement. Boot camp, boot camp. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, when you're 20, 26 years old, he just turned 26 last week. And you've been in Europe for three years on your own, you know, doing your thing. And then you come home and you're isolated. But we had fun. You know, uh, Ralph, you'll laugh about this. You know, we have the Peloton outside. We mm. put weights in the backyard. We just created a workout circuit with bands and just to stay in shape. Oh, we started doing crazy things like um, we called it the Quebec Open because I live on Quebec uh, Lane. And every Tuesday we took all the neighbor's garbage cans and lined it up across the street. And TJ and I went out and played tennis oh. over the garbage cans. <laughs> And the neighbors were like pulling their lawn chairs out and clapping. <laughs> uh, we had bike races. We had the Tour de Avignon. That's the community I live in. Yes. We played tennis. So we tried to have fun and look at the bright side of a very uh, difficult situation. And, and seven weeks ago, I, I had COVID-19. Um, Ralph, I don't know if I told you that. 
Yes. But I, uh, I got it and it kind of laid me up for five, six, seven days. And I was really fortunate. I think because of how, you know, like we work out, my body was strong. And seven days later, I'm on the Peloton and I was begging to get another test. But they said, no, you got to wait the two 14 weeks. days. Yeah. Mm. 14 days. And then I gave it to TJ, but he was asymptomatic mm. and uh, he's never shown one sign. But I'm glad to say two negatives uh, in a 72 hour and, and I'm fine. I'm very, very fortunate. And you went back and got a second test afterwards. They have to give you a second test. Yeah, yeah. So I took a test on the 14th day and then 72 hours and then you get another one. But, you know, some people have said, uh, like Rudy Gobert, you know, he still doesn't have taste. He doesn't mm -hmm. have smell. I can't tell you why I did not get that. I didn't have like anything major as far as fevers. And I really, it, I thank God just for blessing me, you know, because I'm at that age, you know, we're at that age where it's been afflicting some of us. Sure. Well, you know, because of your uh, ability to be in phenomenal shape, it's probably a test of your, you know, your workouts. I mean, we go to Hall of Fame or events, or whatever. We eat two foods in the locker room or in in, in a workout room. When uh, uh, Moses Malone was with us sometime as well, we'd be working out in Phoenix, and Nancy is just a a fiend workout person. She she's probably in shape right now. She probably could play part time in the WNBA anyway, right? I mean, if your knee wasn't bad right now, she would she would want to go play tomorrow, right? I would want to, but you're giving me a little too much credit. Exactly. exactly. 50, 39 and 50 was crazy, right? To play mm -hmm. in my wildest dreams. You know, people say when they retire, I'm never going to pick up a ball. You know, I used to wonder why athletes said that because it brought us so much joy and happiness. And it still brings me joy and happiness. I, I can't wait to be in the gym. Like I do the TV now for the Pelicans. I can't wait to just see Zion and see Lonzo Ball and all these great players, Ingram, and just to see the men that they are, uh, you know, a JJ Reddick who's a pro's pro. And then to watch the, the women of the WNBA, how, you know, they, they're great gatekeepers of the game. So I'm really proud of them. I was happy to eke out a, a year or two. Oh, you, you did well. I mean, you geeked it out, but it's uh, that experience had to be amazing with the seed, you know, final that the WNBA was, you know, existed, right, or started because, you know, women didn't get just do. I mean, coming out of college, I mean, you would watch Nancy play against University of Virginia when I was there. She would be literally behind the back half-court passes before there was even – Pete Maravich doing, you know, she was probably looking at him, watching him play as well, but she did a phenomenal thing at the Old Dominion. It was a great time. And I was really, you know, we all, the greatest thing you can do is play the game. The second thing you can do is maybe coach the game. And then of course, broadcasting, you get to hype the game that brought you so much happiness. And it's, it really, it changed our lives. I mean, think of where we came from, but we had to grind it and our kids, you know, they're living privileged lives oh, yeah, because, yeah. and it's our fault. I mean, we're enablers to our kids who think, well, this is, this is easy stuff, but we started with nothing. You know, you, got, you know, I mean, I was poor, no father, no heat, no electricity. Uh, we were one grandfa uh, grandfather away from food stamps growing up in New York. But when I would go into the park and they would pick me, 
it was like saying you love me because I wasn't getting that at home. Um, and I, I just feel fortunate that going into Rucker, you know, at 10, 11, 12, 13, 15 years old, and, you know, just the, the protection that I had there, there was so much respect because I realized, what's this little redheaded little kid doing? Are you lost? Yeah. And I'd say to the guy, no, I'm not lost. And I'd say, is your name Rucker? <laughs> and say, no. And I said, good, it ain't your park. You <laughs> better help me. And, you know, I, I say this a lot, but I'm very grateful for the black community. Uh, when white people were telling me I was stupid and dumb and never going to make anything of myself, uh, little girls don't play in the schoolyards with black kids, you, you know, the bullying, um, how people profiled you. And then I'd be around my friends, you know, in the black community, and they nicknamed me a first fire. And they would say, you can do anything. You can make that Olympic team in high school. I said, yeah, but they keep telling me I'm not smart enough. I'm too young. And they're like, I mean, they beat the crap out of me, and they really got me ready. And they didn't celebrate. They celebrated me. Uh, they didn't tolerate me at Rucker. They opened their arms to me. So I'm forever grateful. Well, Nancy, it, your story is incredible. And Ralph and I were talking. We're first and foremost glad to hear that you're doing well uh, right now, and and you know got through the COVID scare that it might have been. Uh, and one of the things that have been entertaining us, all of us, there's so much great content out there. Ralph and I were enthralled with the Last Dance documentary for uh, all of those episodes, ten parts, and we were saying there should be one of those about Nancy Lieberman. I mean, your story is. You you couldn't write it. it. It's unbelievable to fathom that ten year old poor skinny redheaded Jewish girl from Queens is showing up to Harlem by herself, taking the train to Rucker Park, playing basketball, and not really even playing organized basketball until your sophomore year of high school, and two years later on the U.S. Olympic team. I mean, that is something that if you pitch that script to Disney, they would say this is unbelievable. If there was a movie about your life, which there should be, Ralph and I want to produce it, what would that movie be called? And what are some of the, the chapters that your story would unfold? Well, I joke around with people, you know, because of Irvin, they call me Lady Magic, mm -hmm. how I pass. So I, Ralph knows I'm highly um, sarcastic. <laughs> so I would call the movie Lady Tragic. <laughs> um, but really, you can't make it up. You can't make the stories up. Um, you know, back, it, it, and guys, when I was uh, hired to coach in the NBA in 2015 by the Kings, there was an NBA symposium at the Clippers facility uh, hosted by, you know, Vinny Del Negro and whatnot. Every assistant coach, every head coach, GM, you know, Phil Jackson, all those guys. Well, I was sitting next to Nick Nurse, who is my buddy because we coached together in the G League. Mm -hmm. When I coached the Mavericks team, it was the D League then. Mm -hmm. So the cool thing is that like Chris Finch, who's with Alvin, uh, Darvin Ham, uh, Eric Musselman, uh, you know, all these guys were so stinking wonderful to me. They were so protective of me uh, and they wanted to kick my butt, my team's butt. But I can tell you, um, I was very grateful uh, that they knew this was important. So we're, I'm sitting next to Nick Nurse in, in, at the Clippers facility, and Pat Riley is the speaker. 
And Pat is like, look, you know, you don't know how things in life go. You don't know what's going to be thrown your way. And I have my iPad and I'm holding it up. And he says, well, you know, my first coaching job with the Lakers was in 1981. I came out of the TV booth and Jerry West and uh, Dr. Buss called me up one day and they say, hey, tomorrow you got a new player. And Pat Riley says, I don't want a new player. I told the guys when they were stretching on the wall that this was serious and I was going to help them get to whatever the next level is. Okay, so I, they say, well, Nancy Lieberman is going to come here tomorrow. And he goes, I don't want Nancy Lieberman. This is not a joke. So, And I was playing in a, a, a kind of a pro league in New York at Xavier High School with Charlie Chris and a couple of those guys. So I fly out there and I go to my first practice. You know, nobody really wants me there except Dr. Buss and Jerry West. So we're on the baseline and, and Pat goes, I need five guys on the court. So I run out with yeah. four other players and everybody's kind of looking at me. So he puts us through some drill. You know, I make mistakes. I don't understand the timing of what he wants, but then I got repetition. And then I got a little bit of a feel for what he wanted. And then the next five came on and I walked by the guys and I'm like, Hey, if you don't know how to run that, I do. I'll be more than happy to help you. with it. And so we get into these drills, the legendary three hour practices. Oh, absolutely. Of, of Pat Riley. So it's intense. I'm getting the crap beat out of me by these guys knocking me down. So, uh, I tried to start two fist fights in practice <laughs> because I wasn't going to let you push me around. Now you might beat me up, but so, okay. Practice ends. And I, I learned this like 25 years later, uh, the coaches go in the, you know, uh, Paul Westhead, who was the head coach and Jerry and Mike Tebow, they go into the meeting and they look at each other and go, who the hell does she think she is? She acts like she's the best player yeah. on the team. She acts like she's six eight in black. And yeah. they're like, what are we going to do with her? They beat her up. She didn't cry. She tried to start two fist fights. And then he tells the story that four days later, I was Pat's starting point guard for the, you know, the, the Southern California Pro League. Mm -hmm. And we get to the last game. And every time Pat's like, isn't that right, Nancy? And I hold up my iPad and I'm like, <laughs> and I put my iPad back and he says, what did we do that last day in August? He said, everybody put their hands in and they said, one, two, three, Nancy. And he, he tells the story that when he would be coaching, he, when he felt his worst moments, he would think about me. They were bigger than me. They were stronger than me. They were faster than me. Uh, and he said every day she came to practice with her heart and her tenacity and her mentality. And he said, I always thought we could do it. So my point is not to pat myself on the back, is to say you, you, you never know, you know, you just never know um, who is, is going to be looking at you. And, you never know whose life you're influencing. Like, you know, all of us today, it could be our smile. It could be our heart. It could be our kindness. 
be tough love, but you never know whose life you're influencing. And until Pat shared that in front of the whole league, I was a little, I was very embarrassed, but really proud that he had, he had wanted to share this with people there. And he kept saying, anybody who thinks they're outmatched, talk to her because she had to live with it every day. You know, I didn't have the WNBA in my prime. I played for the Lakers and the USBL in 86, 87. Uh, for Henry Bibby was my coach, and the next year Frank Layton was my coach. I mean, I could never show my skill set off against guys because it was so great. But I came in with the attitude, what can I do that they can't do? Well, they, they might not have my heart. They might not have my, you know, IQ, their skill and will. And so I just try to make everybody better or get the ball to the right person at the right time or inspire. Um, you know, Michael Adams was my teammate. And, you know, Michael had that shot put. <laughs> you block it from your knees. Yeah, great. Yes, yes. And every day I go to practice and I'd say, can you stay longer? And he'd say, what? I said, you stay longer you're going to make it to the nba but you got to get this thing fat you know fixed and we go on the track and he was like what is wrong with you i said i give my pinky to have your opportunity mm -hmm. but that's just not my lot right now so I, I want the best for you so that's kind of how i view it. so when you were going back um after getting beat up by the Laker crew and go back to the locker room, but also go back to the hotel, whatever, and able to come back the next day. You know, as a basketball player and know the ins and outs of the, when you leave the gym and you got to come back and get your tail beat again the next day, how, what made you come back? I know you, I know you well enough to know you wanted to prove yourself, but how did you take care of your body, your mind and spirit to come back the next day to do the same thing? What did you do? Well, because I, at that point I was 22 and you know, Muhammad Ali has been my hero yes. from 10 years old when I saw him on TV and going into my senior year at Old Dominion, I was asked to go and I'm going to answer the question, but I was asked to go to a fundraiser at the New York Stock Exchange. So my mom and best friend, Barbara, we all went and I was starting to feel better about myself, even though I was probably insecure and a little fraudulent, but I hid behind Nancy Lubin. So we're going up the escalator and I asked the guy, I go, so who's the other athlete? And he goes, well, we're going in the green room now. I said, well, who's here? Who's the other athlete? And he goes, Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't believe my hero. And the door opened and it was one of those, you know, Oprah ah, <laughs> moments. <laughs> And I, I mean, Ralph, it, it really took my breath away because I really like without Ali and not knowing me, I could have been involved in gun. I could have been involved in gangs, robbing, carjacking, because I was really sad and angry uh, at that point in my life, even though Old Dominion kind of helped me through that because we were winning and whatnot. I walk into the room. And there's Muhammad Ali. And my mother goes over to him and goes, Muhammad, she's from New York. She goes, my daughter 
my daughter is the greatest of all times. And he goes, listen, there's only one greatest of all time and it's me. <laughs> and she goes, Mr. Muhammad, I know, I know you're good, but my daughter is great. <laughs> so he calls me over and my head is down and my chest, my, and my heart's popping out of my chest. And he says, your mom says you're good. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I, you know, I'm the greatest of all times. <laughs> And he looked at me and he says, there's two of us. And I go, yeah, there's two of us. And he, he I said, Mr. Muhammad, I, I beat people up too because they hurt my feelings. And he goes, I'm going to ask you to stop beating up people. I said, but, you know, they bully me. And I said, you hit people. He goes, I get paid to hit people. So, you know, he must have known I was kind of full of hooey, you know. and had low self-esteem he, he saw something in me so we go back to the plaza hotel he goes can you guys come with me and i was like yes it really didn't matter with my mom or barbara said we were going with muhammad ali and we go to the plaza and we go in his suite and i was like you know mr muhammad like you changed my life and you you, you gave me vision you gave me a path you know things that i had never gotten before and you didn't even know me so it was one of the most amazing four hours. He talked to me about racism. He talked to me about philanthropy. He talked to me about implied bias. He talked to me about so many things at 22. I had no clue about. And, you know, he was just like, he goes, Nancy, God made you special. And, you know, me being an idiot, I went, you know God too? That is amazing. Like, you know everybody. <laughs> and he just, um, he said, there'll never be a day that I'm not in your life. And I, I, I actually needed somebody because of my insecurities and abandonment with my father. And, you know, I mean, nobody ever watched a movie with me as a kid. Nobody read me um, nursery rhyme. I never had any birthdays growing up, like parties. So I think I was very sad and very angry. And mm -hmm. I took it out on the people that I played with on US teams, on, you know, my team. You know, I went back and told them, you know, 10 years ago, I said, hey, I'm sorry I beat the crap out of you <laughs> practice. I, I was just, it's it was my way of releasing all the things that were bottled up in me at that time. But it made me a better person just having him in my life. And any big decision, when I wasn't sure, I would call him up and say, what do you think? And he would kind of guide me. So I guess I feel so honored that, you know, everybody wanted to be around Muhammad Ali. And I'm not sure why he picked me, but he did. And all I've ever wanted to do was please him in life and in death. You know, I mean, we buried him three, uh, four years ago in June. So, uh, and, you know, I remember Lonnie calling me like six months after the funeral. And she said, um, Nancy, Lonnie's his wife, mm -hmm. and says, um, Mohammed wants to see you. And I was like, what? She goes, Mohammed, and she's pretty... You've been around around yeah, forever. Yeah. She's pretty level-headed. And she said, I I had this thing that Muhammad wanted to see you. And I got on an airplane and I flew to Louisville 
and I spent the day just sitting with him, you know, at his, um, at his, his, you know, gravesite, just talking to him and just saying thank you and how much he meant to me and how the person I've become is, is so uh, sequential to what he had taught me all through life and how to carry myself. You know, he always used to say, Nancy, there's two people in life. There's givers and there's takers. I want you to be a giver. So, you know, in a perfect world, how does that happen? You know, and, and, and sometimes, I, and Ralph, and I know this is crazy, um, you know, obviously to me and a lot of the guys that you played with, you guys are so iconic, and I watched your successes. I'm, I'm still a fan. I mean, I love you as my family, but I am so proud of you because I still get excited to tell people who you were and who you are. And I hope I never lose that with athletes. Uh, it's important to still remember something before, you know, we start making yeah. money, <laughs> yes, and that. And at the core of who we are, we're just kids and loved what we did. Yeah, I mean, all we go back to that. We love what we did, but you know that passion. I think that you and I share amongst all the other people we know, from you know Deion Sanders to you know Magic Johnson. There's a passion that, um, and we all had and still have even today about life. Basketball was special to us as well, but people always ask me, how do I you know get up every day, make my bed, and still have that motivation and drive to be successful? not playing anymore, obviously, but then how do you give back? And so I want people to understand Nathalie, not just a basketball player, but you do other things off the court as well. But I know you recently had a basketball camp. So tell us about how you share with your son doing that, but also how you give back to kids just at the basketball level, because you love being in the gym. I know you would go one-on-one with any kid in there every day of the week and you play there. Most guys are only there for like to speak, and they leave, but you and I will be there from the time it opens till the time it closes. So how do you take from Muhammad Ali to Nancy leaving the person and get back to kids, at least in the camp? We'll get into dream course later on, but into the camp experience. I know I heard you the other day talk to me about that, and that was exciting for me to know that in COVID, there's still a basketball camp there that has 95 kids at it, and you running it, and it's probably pretty good. Well, thank you for saying that. So this was, oh, I'm going to age myself. This was, uh, I got to Dallas in 1980, uh, 1981 and um, 81, 82. I was 22 years old. Okay. This was our 40-year anniversary. Actually, I got here in 80. And to be able to be on the court, even though I had not had surgery yet, so I could just kind of go through stuff. But we have second and third generation. A mom came up to me and had a T-shirt from like 1906 oh, yeah. that I had autographed, you know, Nancy Lehman Klein. And then she um, had her daughter there. And now her daughter's kid is at camp. So it's really cool. And to, um, to know you've influenced so many people in the game. We consider ourselves a character camp. You know, we're going to push you, make you better, give you those skills and drills. You know, Coach uh, Carlisle is always like, can you stop giving the kids the Mavericks offense? <laughs> <laughs> and the terminology. I was like, oh, I just want them to know 
<laughs> you know, we don't want them to be robots. We want them to know this is why you're doing this. And if you don't see that, we want them to learn how to read and, to, you know, their skill and will. And we want them to have, to have both, you know. And uh, there's, you know, emotional um, intelligence and there's uh, intellectual intelligence. And we, we want them to have both and be good teammates. And, and over the last couple of years, you know, to have TJ, oh, yeah. um, you know, be with me on the court. You know, TJ just turned 26 the other day, big guy, about 6'8", six, 6'9". He's a really good teacher. And, and the fact that I couldn't do a lot of drills for the first time, and he just ran all the on-court, you know, demonstrations, uh, running offenses and whatnot. And, you, you know, as a father, you know, to have your kid special. side by mm -hmm. side with you is, um, it, it was very special. Um, you don't know how many times you're going to have that because he's playing um, – He's been playing professionally in uh, Tel Aviv for three years, and he just signed with a team in Italy. Oh, wow. So he leaves, I think, in a week. Wow. So, uh, you know, I'm happy about that. And, you know, you know, uh, guys, you know, uh, we've had about 15 WNBA players, you know, first-round picks, Andrew Riley, people like that come through our camp. Alonzo Mourning was my, one of my campers and Al Horford. When I first started coaching in Detroit, I had my camps there. Al Horford was one of my campers. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's crazy, right? How, how do you know? And it just makes you proud to be a part of, of what they're doing and their success. I think they were both about, you know, 12 or 13. No, was really neat. That's crazy. Well, it, it's incredible. Like I that. mean, they can learn so much from you who's achieved so much uh, on the court as a player, as a coach, just around the game of basketball. I'm curious, where do you get this just sense of courage and no fear? And maybe maybe that's something that you do have. Maybe you do have self-doubts. Maybe you do have fear. But a through line throughout your story, throughout your entire life is it, it definitely appears like you believe in yourself and you're not afraid to put yourself out there, whether it's showing up as a 10 and 11-year-old at Rucker Park, being the youngest uh, U.S. Olympian, man or woman, in basketball uh, in 1976 when you're a senior in high school uh, to being uh, – the oldest rookie in the WNBA after you're already a hall of famer and could just sort of, you know, you could have sat back and been a hall of famer, Nancy Lieberman, but you decided to play in the WNBA at age 39 to come back at age 50 to the WNBA to be the first female head coach of a men's professional league with the Texas legends, uh, an assistant coach in the NBA. Do you ever have fear and doubt creep in? before all of these decisions. Uh, I didn't even mention posing nude in ESPN <laughs> body issue at age 60. I mean, you are fearless. Uh, is that true? Are you really fearless? And and if so, where where does this come from? Again, I'm going to have to go back to my man, uh, mm. Muhammad Ali, when, you know, I was trying to have to play, uh, you know, with the Lakers and the first one with Pro League started, then it, felt, it folded. And Muhammad always used to say to me, I want you to respect everybody, but I want you to fear nobody. And it was as simple as that. And, 
you know, he also would say things like, you have to see it, you have to say it to be it. You have to see yourself being on the Olympic team, say it every day. And I, I did, I brushed my teeth every day and I was like, I'm going to be on the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if it was going to happen or not, but you know, you have to believe in yourself. If, if you don't believe in you, why should anybody else believe in you? And, and I think the other thing, um, and I just obviously give him a lot of credit, you know, the greatest love of all, you know, I decided long ago, never walk in anyone's shadow. You know, if I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe, no matter what they talk, take from me, they can't take away my dignity because the greatest love of all is inside of me. I didn't love me because of things that went on in my childhood. You know, I was very damaged, but I so hid from that because I was so embarrassed. So I just had this laser, you know, laser focus that I needed basketball more than basketball needed me. And I just, I, I had to be great. Uh, I couldn't be good. I wanted to win. And, um, you know, I wasn't the most popular teammate at Old Dominion. It was really hard on him. Hey, Ralph, um, the last dance. Yep. Um, I got to be honest. Um, I identified with Jordan. Oh, yeah. I was very hard on my teammates. I mean, mm-hmm. we had some fistfights in practice. Um, but I, again, I needed them to come to, like, our level instead of me coming down to other people's level. And um, it was just because, you know, I needed, I, I needed the attention. I needed the adoration of people. And in a really crappy way, it was false. And I remember having this conversation one night, you know, sitting with Michael Jackson in his hotel room at two in the morning, hugging each other. And we were both bawling like babies because we found somebody who we could trust and tell about our fears, my childhood, his childhood. And the one thing that we talked about is we were so broken inside. And when the the fans were cheering, it's like fake love, if you will. But it it was important at that time. Hmm. Well, I mean, People see you, beautiful woman, done a lot of stuff in your career and life, but no one would know those type of things that are inside. But that's part of who you are and what made you, Nancy Levin, the person to me. But when you look back at all that, from all the story we alluded to, there should be a last dance. We, we would call it Nancy's greatest something. Whatever. We got a good, great name for it as well from a document, which it should be one. And, and, and I'm sure a lot of people are out to make that work. But when I look at you and what you've done, and there's no barriers. You know, we talk about this all the time. There's bar- we talk about barriers all the time. How do we break through those barriers of life when people don't want you on the Olympic team? You know, I played on 1979 Pan American team with Bobby Knight and didn't get to play much and then got to play at the end. Uh, barriers that inhibit us from getting where we want to go. Now, if you see a barrier, I know what you're going to do. You're going to jump over it, go around it, jump through it. You're not going to take the easy way out. So in that type of stuff, we talk about all the time, how do you now teach people or the next steps, knee injury to COVID to your son, you know, talk to me about dream course. Cause I know you have this vision and 
you do great things. I've come to your events in Dallas in any given time we can. And I saw um, Lonnie Ali speak that one was very impressive. And I knew Lonnie from her days in Charlottesville, Virginia as well at, at a law firm there, but her and Muhammad as well, which I knew you always go back to that. But how do you break through those barriers? But with dream courts, tell me a little bit more about that because you know, I want one of those dream courts in Charlottesville with Tony Bennett's name on it, uh, you know, with NCAA, Virginia, Final Four and all that kind of stuff. Finally winning a, a national title, which is crazy, but dream courts are very special to you, but also to me as well. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, if I could just take a minute to tell you prior to the dream courts, when you were talking about uh, certain things, um, when I played at 50, I was doing the TV for ESPN. And um, I go to, uh, I play the game and uh, I show up on that Monday to do the TV for, I was doing the Laker game uh, and Van Gundy and those guys were interviewing um, Phil Jackson. And I finished that and I was walking down the hall and Kobe called me and he goes, Hey, you got 15 minutes? I said, yeah, what do you need? And he goes, I want to talk to you which I found interesting. So we sit in this room and he goes, why would you come out? Why would you risk your reputation? You just became, you know, a hall of famer or you're a hall of famer. What is it that would make you go out there? And I said, I'm not afraid. I'm sort of a minimalist, like two things can happen. You can like me or not like me. I could get a contract or not get a contract. I could play or not play. So I kind of keep things in life as simple as possible. Like I, I don't, I don't overthink stuff. So, you know, things like that for me, um, it's interested, interesting that a lot of these guys, and when I was talking to them and we started talking about, you know, charity and whatnot. And I said, you know, Kobe, I, you know, I kind of grew up in, in the hood. I mean, everybody has their own hood. But, you know, it, it was a safe place when I walked on that court, you know, whatever, a high school court, 84 by 50. And I felt really protected by the guys. And I met people. There was a bond. There was a trust. There was a respect, even though we looked different. And I said, I think what I want to do when I get to the point with my charity that we can build these dream courts and it's called a dream court because it was my dream to be on a court. Could you, you could no longer profile me. You could no longer give me these Nancy camp moments of what you can't do. And so we did the first one, I think in 2009 here in Frisco, when I was coaching the Mavs G league team, it was so beautiful. Um, and I can remember driving by and just watching kids play on the court and it just brought me joy. So, and you know, I mean, how many friends, lifelong friends have you made being on the court? Look at LeBron, the, the guys he played with are running his management company. There's this inherent bond. So we just kept saying, okay, this is amazing. And I, I, I don't want to give myself uh, too much credit because my, my emphasis was putting parks in underserved areas where kids, instead of maybe drugs or alcohol or whatever, you know, gang violence, they would want to get on the court and play. We'll fast forward to today. 
and I really do believe that God has his hand all over this stuff because we now have 94 dream ports open around the country. Um, we have over 4 million young people playing on these courts. Uh, the cool thing, which again, I, I didn't know would happen, is we started uh, after the shooting here in Dallas in 2016, where five officers were killed. Um, I became close friends with Chief Brown, who's now the chief in Chicago. Pray for that man. And, you know, he was like, Nancy, I, I need your dream ports. And I was like, you know about my dream ports? He said, we, we really need it in the southern sector. He said, you could go into South Dallas. They will hug you, high five you, and just embrace you. He goes, my officers go over there. They want to kill him. And I said, well, one, I'm not afraid. Two, I've been to that area for a long time. And, you know, you, you build up equity. You know, the more you put in, the more trust that is built. So, you know, to this day, we have like 26 dream ports uh, that are open. And as of uh, 2019, the really cool thing was we now have STEM and we have a curriculum. We have programming for all STEM. I mean, Ralph, you're a critical thinker because of basketball. We know the science of the court. We know inertia, you know, dribbling the ball. We know angles. We were doing STEM before STEM was yeah, a thing. Before it created. Yep. Yeah, so we, we were doing that. Um, we now have another program called Civic Activation, where we have a civic hoops project where if you know how we play horse when we were little, if you get ready to shoot a shot, we give you a question. Who was the first president of the United States? And then who was, who was number one in the NBA? So the kid has to kind of correlate, well, Zion Williamson. Okay, well, your homework tonight is to read more about Zion and read more about you know, President Washington. So we started, kids have to learn about local, state, you know, um, you know, national government, as we're seeing right now, you need to be educated. So we're, we're putting education. So we have the kids and cops program where the police interact with, uh, with the kids on the cop. And when we introduce the cops, I say, you know, this is Ralph. Ralph has, you know, three dogs. He's got, you know, four kids. Um, he's been married for, for eight years. And, you know, he grew up around here. So we want to humanize the police officers. So there's some sort of bond. He's not just a guy with a gun or a gal with a gun and tasers. So that's one. And, you know, the other thing is we've sent 70 high school seniors to college. And I can tell you right now, we will have some uh, changes on that. And Ralph, you can probably help me with this. Um, we want to give those 15 scholarships to young girls and boys, but we want them to go to historic, historically black colleges so they can get in. And right, what a cool thing that would be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have 15 kids a year and, and maybe more, you know, with more funding. Um, they have to follow a first responder Every year could be a police officer, firefighter, you know, a medic, four hours 
one semester, four hours the next, and then that person becomes their mentor. So we just don't throw the money at the school and go, you know, have at it. They have my cell, they have my email, they have to correspond with me during the course, at least one time during each semester. You know, are you happy, are you sad, is things going well for you? So we're trying to do these things. Um, the, the other thing is, uh, during this pandemic, um, I'm kind of like a outside thinker, a little bit like Donnie Nelson, uh-huh. you know, yeah. out there. So we want to do dream. We want to do virtual dream ports. Yeah. Okay. So if you're a kid, okay, and maybe you can't get to the park right now or whatever's happening in our country, you click on. It's like building a Tesla. You go to your site, and let's say we want a, a court in, you know, Harrisonburg. The, the, the city decides what your, you know, cultural heritage is in that community. Far be it for me to say, you know, let's do this. Let's involve the community. You, you get a group of people, you have a consensus, and then you create your court. You give it to us, we'll lay it out, and then once we, um, once we put the court down, You'll be able to stomp the court. So, you know how they, you know, stomp the yard. We have a program with it, stomp the court. So now there's kids going to the computer. They're learning design. They're learning how to work collaboratively. Then they get to actually, you know, put the court together. And then we could, you know, we could take those kids and we can teach them, you know, analytics. Um, with computers and help them maybe get a job in the NFL, NBA, you know, internships. So now we have not only measurables and scalability, but we have outcomes. So these are the things that we're thinking about uh, with the charity. Mm-hmm. No, it's, uh, I, I, I knew it was somewhere in that round, but also read the website all the time. I get the, the daily or emails from Nancy Lieberman and young fellows TJ's email newsletter pretty much every week. So I read it all the time, but uh, I knew it was more. I didn't know it was 97. we got to get to a hundred dream courts. That's the, I guess the goal here, you know, coming up soon, but amazing what you do with that. But I want to figure out how we network with other, other athletes. We talk about it all the time. How can we network with other guys, other females, other professionals in, in the country to build something special because this climate, this market with pandemic and this, whole movement and all the stuff that's going around in the world, it's time to make an impact in, in, in a big way. This is a bad situation, but it can be turned into a great situation as we all do know. So can always commend you on what you do, but, and I know you're out over the top thinker. So what is next, which is good to hear. So we'll talk offline and we'll figure that out. Yeah, I think it would be the one thing I've heard from a lot of the guys, like, you know, we're doing cubes court in mm-hmm. uh, Horthon. It's right outside of Compton. And I'm like, do I need a bulletproof vest? <laughs> do I stay away some things in my color wheel, like blue and red? And he, he just laughs at me. Um, we're doing Big Baby Davis's court at LSU. Um, you know, Ralph, if, if we could put a court where you grew up, uh, Billy Crystal wanted his court in Long Beach, New York. You know, that's where he learned to play baseball and basketball, and it meant a lot to him. So uh, we did one for Del Harris in Richmond, Indiana. 
Larry Fitzgerald wanted his in um, Minnesota, where he grew up at Boys and Girls Club. And we're doing one for Penny uh, Hardaway and, and Dame Lillard. We're all ready to roll on those courts. We just have to wait, you know, for this to settle down. But what a legacy. Um, these courts will be there for the next 35 to 40 years. It's, um, it's your gift to the community with, you know, we don't want the, um, you know, we don't want the pat on the back. We want, you know, like you donate it to wherever, you know, involve, if it's not such a bad word, the police and the city, just so people are happy and kind of working together. So we can do that for you. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I man, I'm more or less don't worry about the name Ralph Sampson than the person. So like Charlottesville, I look at that right now with all the stuff that's happened in Charlottesville the last couple of years and what's going on there now as well. And then I wanted in the NCAA Final Four champion court with Tony Bennett, like, you know, the great, great, great guy and the president of the school. And then I was with the governor of Virginia maybe two weeks ago. So we'll talk again how to do something special because it's, it's kind of an opportunity there now that I see. I mean, I named the high school court that I played on under my coach's name, not myself. So for me, it's not me. It's about what we do together and how we make it happen. We can use the name as we know we can leverage, but how can we make that impact in any community we serve to make it special? So I think we'll do one. We'll do, we'll do one in Virginia somewhere, hopefully in Charlottesville with the, the crazy part about them winning the championship. And they had the, the parade for the team uh, after the championship. It was um, 40 years later, and I'm dating myself, 40 years later as my official visit was at University of Virginia. The same exact day that that was 40 years later. And I went on my visit and it was my mother's birthday and I took my visit short because it's only 48 hours you can go. I took the video short because I want to go back to my mother's birthday. But I went and spoke, you know, in the football stadium, probably 30,000, 40,000 people and gave them that story like, oh, this is deja vu. This, this was meant to be 40 years, 40 years in. So it brought back memories for me from that perspective. But we'll do one in Charlottesville with, with you and the Dream Courts and hopefully we can connect a lot of people with that. Well, that would be cool because, you know, Chris Beard um, yes. from uh, Texas Tech, um, we're going to do one because, you know, Andre Emmett, you know, was murdered. Mm -hmm. um, his great player. He played in the big three. He, you know, this is as you know again in life. Um, Andre Emmett was like thirty-seven years old. I was what sixty. We were inseparable. We would fly to cities every Friday, and we'd always switch seats so we could sit together. And you know, I, I will embarrass anybody. And so we get on the plane, it's our last flight. We're in the playoffs, he's not. And so I go, hey, Andre, what are you doing at the airport? I go, you guys are losers. I mean, you guys uh, didn't advance. <laughs> so um, he said, let's sit together again. So he's sitting in like the third row, first class on the right side, I'm in the bulkhead. So there's this uh, older white gentleman and you know, he's on his computer. And Andre's like, come on, come on. So I turn around and I go, sir, would it be possible if maybe together? And he goes, no, no, um, this is where I want to sit. And I went, okay, so we're in the middle of a bad divorce. And, <laughs> you know, I really think because we have the children that if you would just allow us to sit together, we could probably work through some of our issues. And it would... 
and and I just look I go just because I'm 60 doesn't mean I'm not fun and I go I'm sorry that got personal and and the guy goes and he grabs his computer and everything and he goes okay I'll switch seats with you I sit next to Andre and he goes what did you just do I said you asked me to sit next to you and am I next to you yeah and so you know, uh, like he would have all these tattoos on his fingers and whatnot. And I'm really mad with him because I only knew what the ones on his right hand meant. And when I went to view him, um, I sat there by myself and I'm like, I'm upset with you. Hmm. You never told me what the ones on your left hand said. But my point is, we talked about life. We talked about love. We talked about relationships. We talked about religion. All it, everything was on the table. I wanted to know what he felt about things. He wanted to know what I thought about things. And isn't that how life should be? I mean, yes. we don't have to agree. I'm a Yankees fan, and everybody hates me. Yeah. Well, but your choice is good. <laughs> yeah, and I just always go, you know, we have 27 of me. Right. <laughs> well, Nancy, it's amazing the work that you're doing in the community. Uh, a basketball court has always been a safe haven for you, and you're paying it forward and giving that gift uh, community by community, letting other people dedicate courts in their communities. And uh, it's it's just awesome to see the work that you continue to do. Of all the things you've accomplished in your life and in your career, from Olympic medals to national championships to breaking barriers and breaking and owning records, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of being TJ's mom, first and foremost. Uh, I'm really proud of him. And, you know, when I was younger, I never really thought about being a mom, but to have the blessing of your child have children, uh, Jace, um, assuming you do, there's, there's nothing like it. I mean, you could put up all your medals and what you've done, but your child's happiness supersedes that. So TJ and, and certainly playing in the Olympics, playing for my country. Uh, you know, I always say this, I mean, I'm sure I'll get kill, killed for it, but you know, I, I love black lives. I'll do anything and everything for black lives. I will always stand for the national anthem and put my hand on my heart. It's, it changed my life. And it's not out of disrespect. It's just where I am today and have always been. But, you know, 95% of the money we raise, I mean, we've probably given, um, over six million dollars cold hard cash since 2012 you know um to the underserved community mostly the black community because we care i don't care if you look different mm -hmm. i just want you to be happy and have some self-esteem and you know let's get you on the right track it means something yeah. to me um and that's what I want to do. You know, I, I mean, I, I want to win another championship in the big three. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm so proud. You know, Ralph said something and I had forgot about it. But, you know, when we honored, uh, were, you, were you at Dream Ball when Ralph, when um, you got honored? Were you there that year? Uh, two years ago? I think so. Yeah. I think, so, yeah. you know, he got on the stage and he said, you know, Nancy and I, are similar he goes 
we have differences, yeah. but you know, I'm black from Compton. She's white from Queens. She's because I'm young. She's old. I wasn't really <laughs> down with that. Mm. And he says, but the we have so many sim- similarities. You know, sometimes you got to go under things. Sometimes you got to go around things. To your point, sometimes you got to go over them. And he goes, sometimes you just got to go through them. And he said, Nancy's my spirit animal. And I sat at the table and I went, that's good, right? Yeah. I'm a spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we talk right now, you know, um, because I care about him and I care about what he's feeling. And I want to know what's on his mind. And I want to know how we can make it better. Yeah. This is how I am at this stage. No, yeah. well, that's who that's you great. are, period. That's not just stage. We're not getting older, we're getting better. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I mean, you're a great father. You work so hard for, you know, communities, your foundation, your business acumen. Uh, anything you do, you do the right way. And I, I really respect that, Ralph. Well, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability, right or wrong. I'm going to work hard at it, as we all know. So. Now we got that guy, Gary Reeves, running around. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, that's another that's another whole issue, but it's good. Yes. That's for the next episode. Uh, Nancy, one question that we like to ask all of our guests here on Center Court is, is there some person that you would like to pay homage to? Someone who inspired you, who helped you achieve the success that you had in your career, both on a basketball court and off. Someone that might not get the recognition that they deserve that you really want to pay your respects, pay homage to. Well, obviously, I've, I've shared with you about Muhammad Ali. Right. Um, people didn't know um, how close Kobe Bryant and I were. And that Friday night, I still have his text messages to me on the 24th. I was in the studio doing the, um, uh, the uh, Pelicans game. And um, a couple of the guys who do this, the uh, Spurs games and uh, Oklahoma City, they were, you know, sitting up in front, you know, Greg Buckner and those guys, yeah. Scalab- not Scalabrini, um, I forget who else. And so I was in the cubes behind watching my TV, and those guys were, can you believe Kobe told a reporter that women could play in the NBA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they started talking, and you know me, Ralph, I just popped my head up and I went, hello, I'm still here. <laughs> And, you know, Buck, oh, it was Matt Bonner. They turned around and I was like, hey, you know, I'm not saying it's the place to go. But Kobe said, like, my more Della Don, Mm -hmm. Tarasi, you know, something like that. So I was joking and I said, well, let's just ask Kobe, you know, me, you know, just being full of nonsense. So I text him and. I said, hey, want to talk about women? It was about um, 8 o'clock, 7.30 at night. And I said, you want to talk about women playing in the NBA? And he says, absolutely, they could. So I said, no, I agree with you. I said, there is so much disrespect and racism. Some people just know. Some people just don't know that. And I I went, shit. Um, I, I had to play, you know, when I had to play against men in the summer league and blah, blah, blah. And he writes back, exactly. I remember that. No one talks about that, Nancy. 
I couldn't agree more with you because people now have a WNBA and they don't realize how hard it was, you know, for you or your generation. And I said to him, thank you for fighting for us, your babies at home and our future. Uh, they have to believe in what they can do. And people say when they never could become something, they try to impose their effing mediocrity on all of us. And he goes, exactly, 100, 100, 100. And he says, come coach uh, Gianna's team. Yeah. And I said, when are you, when do you practice? He goes, every night. Wow. And I said, okay, can I text you next week? Um, because I have TV and I have some things I have to do, but I can come out Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Okay. Wow. So I had to fly to Indian Wells uh, to do something. And um, the next morning, or that night, about 12 o'clock, Kobe called me at night. Just Kobe's like, chop, chop, let's get this thing moving. And he goes, okay, can you come out Wednesday? I said, yes. He says, come to the house. We'll grab some food. We'll get on the helicopter. We'll go right. to the academy. And you have as much time as you want to put the kids through practice with me. I said, I would love it. It's an honor. So I, um, I told TJ uh, that I talked to TJ Friday night and told him, hey, I'm going to go out and coach the honest team for night. But we didn't have it set up at that time. So I'm sitting in this massive ballroom with like 700 people Sunday morning. And I swear to God, I turned my phone on, on uh, mute. So I'm sitting, I always sit in the back of the room because I, I have the attention span of a fly mm -hmm. and I hate being trapped like a rat. So right. I always sit in the first seat at the, the end of the back. And uh, my phone starts ringing. And I'm like, oh, my God. I grab my phone and I run out as to not bother people. And TJ had just landed in Italy. And TJ says to me, Mom, Mom. I'm like, yes. He goes, Mother, are you okay? I go, yeah, why? He goes, Mom, I thought you were on the helicopter. Oof. And I go, what helicopter? He goes, you haven't heard. He goes, Kobe, Kobe Bryant's helicopter crashed. And everybody died. And I thought, we're on the helicopter. And I said, honey, I never got a chance to tell you. I talked to him last night. We're going to do it Wednesday. We're going to do it Wednesday. It, that was one of the hardest moments that my kid thought, you know, that I had died. Wow. And if I didn't have my phone on, on. Yep. I he thought he would have thought, mm. you know, if I don't pick it up for two hours, he thinks I'm on there. Wow. Yeah, wow. you know, that Kobe Bryant thing hits, hit everybody around the world. I was, I mean, didn't believe it, you know, at that point in time. And with her, that Rick Fox and other people may have been on there. So we were all, as NBA, WNBA, or professional athletes, calling everybody, I'm sure, like, like crazy was the real. But uh, definitely thankful that you wasn't on that. Uh, I'm sure TJ is as well. But got to be emotional for you and it will always be I'm sure for us to even tell the story over and over and over again for years to come so it'll never be forgotten for sure never but he was he was so good he was talking to me talking to me about business and expanding what I do yeah, absolutely 
uh, you know, we all need somebody to kind of guide us. No matter who we think we are, everybody needs somebody. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, he had the withal. Can you believe all the players and people and athletes he knew around the world? I was like. Everybody. He, no, he had a role to do. Everybody. Yeah. yeah. He had time for everybody. Because I thought it was special that he would check in on me. What's going on? I said, uh, how's the legacy in the queen? Right. Um, and he, we talked uh, in September. I was at the U.S. Open. And I was flipping the coin to mm. start the, the matches mm. on a Tuesday. He did it on a Monday. So they said he was there. So I texted him. I'm like, dude. You're at the U.S. Open. He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm flipping the coin to start the matches. I go, you know I'm going behind my back. Right, right. He goes, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, I'm flipping it behind my right back. Yeah, right back at you. Wow. Well, thank right you, Nancy, back. for sharing that with us. Uh, you know, it's uh, it was a tragic loss felt by everyone in, in the world uh, that Sunday. But obviously – uh, you closer than than most, and uh, you know I feel like I'm sure you do feel very lucky and grateful to have had all of those times and experiences with him that he really had an impact on on you personally and uh, on the game of basketball, but also such a champion for uh, women's basketball I mean, as well. Yeah, big time. It was you know that's why guys like Ralph are so important on hyping him in uh, the game. Um, you know, like even like at 50, when he asked me why I came back and played mm-hmm. from that day on, you know how you would never tell anybody kind of nicknames or pet yeah, names yeah, you yeah. have for each other. And if I talk to him, he goes, how's the mama mamba? <laughs> <laughs> so he used to always call me mama mamba. So it was really kind of cool. Yeah. Wow. Great guy. Well, Nancy, we could talk to you for, for days, but uh, I know you've got a, a lot going on, clearly, as we've heard some of this. So we would love to have you back on in the future to chat more about the WNBA, about the NBA. Uh, obviously, you are broadcasting, following the league very closely. And we were planning to get into all of your thoughts and insights on what's happening with both of those leagues back in action. But you're just too interesting of a, of a person. There's too much to cover when it comes to Nancy Lieberman. Well, we'll, we'll wait till our medication wears off. <laughs> I'll, I'll be calling now. Be calling <laughs> exactly. Hey. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. What you know? Well, let's leave it with this. What is next for Nancy Lieberman? You, you know, age it does not stop you. Nothing really stops you. You continue to uh, blaze uncharted paths and territories. Do you have any other future goals or, or things in, in your sights? Well, I love basketball, obviously. Um, the other day, Baron Davis texted me and he goes, you want to go in and be part of the group that buys the Atlanta Dream? I really hadn't thought about that. And, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's always the – I say always, it's very competitive, but maybe go back and coach in the NBA. But we'll, we'll see. Uh, I, you know what? I'm exactly where I am. This is exactly where God wants me. I don't sweat anything because I, I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time with the right people. And sometimes we want so bad to be somewhere and we get it and we realize we're miserable. They want to be and it can yes. be worker with people. And uh, sometimes you just got to, you know, just be around the people that love you, care about you, and 
want to do life with. It's so short. It is that. It is. Well, thank you for sharing all of this with us. And uh, Ralph and I want to produce the the documentary, the story <laughs> of, of Nancy Lieberman, Lady Magic, because it is something that you wouldn't believe in a movie, all of the things that you've achieved and the way that you've done it. Uh, I really hope more people, after listening to this episode, take a little time on YouTube and do a deep dive on the incredible life and career that you have led. Thank you. I love you too. Definitely. Thanks, so. <laughs> All right, you. It will work up to love. We'll work up there. Yeah, we'll get it. But I appreciate it, and and uh, we uh, admire and respect you, and and really thank you again for joining us here today. Okay, I need. Oh, yeah, for those that are watching, you can see I got a lot of bobbleheads behind me, but I need a uh, Nancy Lieberman front and center with the spotlight on it for all future episodes. So yeah, I will. Right. Right. <laughs> thank you, dear. No, thank you. Thank you both. Ralph, you know, I love you deeply. Jason, you're getting on that list of people I admire. <laughs> Thank you. Send me your address so I can send you a bobblehead. That'd be awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Wow. Well, it was fascinating chatting with Nancy. As I said to her at the end there, we could talk for hours and hours. And I'd love to have her back on the show to get her thoughts on what's going on in the NBA, the WNBA and beyond. She's someone always to keep an eye on. She's always in motion. My gosh, in motion. I mean, to say (laughs) the least, in fluid motion, competitor, uh, motivated. I mean, the Muhammad Ali stories, the just the drive and seeing her just the way she at the day with dream courts. I mean, it, it, you know, it gave me chills and, and, mm. and goosebumps because I know her pretty well and I know her heart. And you saw that today. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who is changing lives uh, one basketball court at a time. Basketball court 97. changed her life. You understand 97 dream courts across the country. We got to get her to 100, but so oh, a lot she'll of get there. across the country, four, four million kids that she's impacting on a yearly basis. It's That's amazing. incredible. It's amazing. And, you know, the game of basketball has changed your life, has changed her life. It has uh, uh, opened so many doors. And that basketball court has been a safe haven uh, always for Nancy. And now she's paying it forward for literally millions of other kids to have Absolutely. that same experience. And so, I mean, she's a wonderful person, good friend of mine, lover to death. So we'll have her back. We'll get her back. You know, we, we got, have we got some other stuff to talk to about it. We got, we'll get her back. Absolutely. Well, we've got some great guests coming up. I hope you've all enjoyed listening. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Center Court. Please be sure to like us, to subscribe, to give us all those great reviews on iTunes and Spotify. It means a lot, and it helps us as we continue to grow. Thank you, everyone. All right. Keep following our adventures. A new episode every week right here on Center Court.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.